0: Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery again, another China History Podcast, our second in a series covering the history of Hong Kong. Today we're going to get into all the interesting things going on around South China that later culminated in the Opium War, or the First Anglo-Chinese War. Everything I mentioned in the last episode, well, that part of Hong Kong's history has sort of been shunted aside for the part that we'll begin looking at today. I mentioned in the last episode, the history, or at least Hong Kong's historical association with China, went all the way back to the Qin Dynasty. And at least we know for certain, for absolute certain, that there were Chinese officials coming all the way down to Hong Kong since at least the Han Dynasty, due to the tomb that was unearthed in uh, Chiangsha Wan back in 1955. Hong Kong wasn't any place of significance yet back then, And I guess all the way up to the Opium War, Hong Kong was simply another local place of no particular political consequence or worthwhile economy. It was merely part of some county reporting to someone who reported to someone, you know, up the chain of command. So today, let's just look at the whole lead up. We'll look at all the names of those who had top billing in this major theatrical and historic event. We'll also look at the events that led up to the Convention of Chen Bi. And then, next time in Part 3, we'll see what happens with the Treaty of Nanjing. This is the watershed event where most historians say the history, or the real history, of Hong Kong began. Going way back, Hong Kong residents, including the five bunde clans, remember there were five clans who were the original Hong Kongers, everyone got caught up in the two Hai Jin these were bans on foreign sea trade that were sort of implemented by executive order from the emperor. The first came in 1371, called for by the Ming dynasty founder, Zhu Yuanzhang, the Hongwu emperor. This later was rescinded, and then, you know, beginning in 1405, you have the whole Zheng He seven voyages that followed soon after the Hongwu emperor's death. The second ban on foreign trade, and the more serious of the two for Hong Kong people, came in 1647. This one was called for by the Kangxi Emperor. It was his way to deal with the havoc that uh, Zheng Chenggong was causing all up and down the southeast China coast. Zheng Chenggong, a.k.a. Koxinga, was one of the great heroes in the history of Taiwan. I'm not going to get into it here, but during the Qing, he was a major pain to the government, both in Fujian province and in Beijing. When we start our History of Taiwan series, we'll take a closer look at uh, Zheng Chenggong. Kangxi, in his infinite wisdom, called for a sea trade ban, and then called for this great clearance in 1655. If you could picture this, everyone... And I mean everyone, even those down in Hong Kong, had to pick up and get out and evacuate the coastal areas. And if you didn't obey, you got beheaded. And that alone induced everyone to comply with this new imperial edict. People had to move about 50 li or 15, 20 miles inland. And if you had a boat or any kind of seafaring vessel, you had to burn it. This went on until 1684, when Kangxi reopened trade. When it was all over, and people and all those who lived along the coast and who had settled in Hong Kong, who lived through this period, when they went back to their homes after, you know, 20, 30 years of typhoons and number 8 signals, the place was just wrecked, and people had to start all over. And this very strict and draconian ban on sailing on vessels of any kind as you can imagine, put a major crimp in the fishing business. So today, let's just fast forward to the Qing Dynasty. This is where it all began as far as when Hong Kong went from being this sparsely settled land with an economy that relied on fishing, pearls, and salt to one of the great centers of China trade with the West. This was the time of these incredible... Merchant adventurers and the founding of the legendary firms like Jardine Matheson, Swire, Dent, Russell, Augustine Hurd, Howland Aspinwall, Wheelock Marden, and many, many others. But it's Jardine and Matheson that I want to talk about first today because these were the two chaps who joined together in 1827 to get the ball rolling in the 1830s. Theirs is quite the interesting story. Many of you are probably familiar with the company they started. James Clavell wrote a couple novels called Taipan and Noble House that were loosely modeled on Jardine Matheson and company. So today, let's sort of use William Jardine as one of the cornerstones to tell today's story. Last episode, we mentioned Jorge Alvarez. He was part of an early contingent of Portuguese who were scouting around the area in and around Hong Kong. The Portuguese were the first Westerners to get a look-see at the economic opportunities available out this way. Their trading vessels were not only packed with provisions and cargo, but always with any number of Jesuits looking to see what harvest they could reap out in these faraway lands. So 16th and 17th century, we recall the great work of the Jesuits. I mentioned Ricci, Schal von Bell, and Verbeest in a previous episode. uh, That was number 98. There were others who followed, and then as soon as the scent of blood got in the water, as far as the riches of Cathay sitting there waiting to be had, all the other sharks started heading in that direction. There came the Dutch, the English, and the French, who mostly stayed down in Vietnam for the time being. When Kangxi put an end to the Haijin in 1684, it's not like he welcomed the foreigners back. China was still closed for business, and trade was restricted to Canton and Macau. The British, meanwhile, were making a ton of money in India and getting that place all set up. That was the springboard to China. It was the success In carrying out commerce in India since the Battle of Plassey in 1757, and the men of steel who grew out of that world. That facilitated the whole opium war and everything that would later follow with Hong Kong. So here was the problem. It was called the Canton system. It had been developed between 1685 and 1752. Western traders made some efforts to do some direct trade with China via Ningbo and Xiamen. But if you wanted to do business with China, beginning around 1757, you had to work within this Canton system. It was corrupt, arbitrary, and quite an inefficient monopoly. The Qianlong Emperor was the first to command that all foreign trade had to go through this Canton system. Despite all the drawbacks, though, it was still a most profitable business for these foreign traders. But the whole system was skewed in favor of the kohong, or in Mandarin, the Gong These were the 13 Chinese merchants, or Hongs. I don't know how much money they had to pay to get this concession, but being a member of the kohong was, if you played your cards right, like a diamond mine on top of a gold mine. Thirteen of these merchants, maybe some of them you remember, the more familiar guys who ran these hongs, well, the most notable of them was Kwa, known in Chinese as Wu Bingjian. Haokwa's particular hong was called the Yi Wo Hong, or in Mandarin, the Yihe Hang. When William Jardine later had to choose a Chinese name for his Jardine Matheson company, he adopted Haokwa's venerable company name. Well, these 13 Kohong merchants, they had a lock on all official China trade. There was a lot of smuggling going on all over the place. These, these were the days, late 18th, early 19th century, that you know all those legendary days of smuggling were, were going on. There's countless stories of these smugglers and their exploits during the 1820s and 30s that are you know, locked away in diaries, letters, and all kinds of obscure books. We remember the big names, though, and they're... Daring exploits. The United States, still a brand new country and all, the Brits locked them out of all the decent Atlantic trade. So off to China, the Americans went to seek out any and all trade opportunities. This whole thing, the uh, early Americans in China, that's a future CHP topic. They competed neck and neck with the British for any business they could get their hands on. They smuggled opium and other goods as much as the next European. But all the official trade, which by far was the lion's share, had to go through Haokwa and his 12 other members of this hated Canton system. The 13 members of the Kohong, they reported to the Hapo or the Haopo. The Hapo, he was responsible for managing all the trade, dealing with an unending string of Incidents and complaints and, most important, collecting all the duties and anything he could squeeze out of the foreigners. He served in his capacity as Hoppo for only three years. It's said this position was so lucrative, vast, vast sums of money were paid in bribes to the imperial government to secure it. And it took two years of collecting duties and profits and shaking down the foreigners just to pay back the officials who were responsible for the Hoppo's good fortune. So it was only in the third year that he made his own profit. And being at the center of one of the world's great trading monopolies at the time, it was uh, quite a profit. This is more or less the crux of the problem. It was a clash of cultures. The Chinese decision makers at the time really didn't have a clue about what was coming. No one seemed scared of these foreigners. The Chinese couldn't have been more oblivious to the changes going on in Europe as a whole in the 18th and 19th centuries. After so many thousand years, the Chinese were so sure of their superiority and their entire manner of dealing with the foreigners was carried out in this way that just infuriated the British, who themselves were so certain of their own cultural, economic, and political superiority. And the fact that the British were clamoring like crazy to buy all these commodities and finished manufactured goods from China, gave these Chinese merchants more than just the upper hand. In their little commercial trading world, the Chinese side acted like little more than a dictator. They weren't trying to buy anything from England or any of the European nations. Sure, there were some things that you know Chinese bought, but there was simply nothing... Britain could provide that would give some semblance of a trade balance, you know, like China had with tea. Tea had long been embraced by the swells of Britain, and now by the working class folk, too. And this was not a small market. But once things got nice and solid in India for the British, they acquired a little more confidence, and although the horrific Canton system would do for the time being, the most astute and daring of the British traders knew... They were determined to scrape this hated Canton system off the bottom of their shoe and set up their own base in the Pearl River Delta region in order to get what they wanted. And if it meant going to war with China, they would find some way to do it. These budding companies crammed into these so-called factories in Canton, just outside the city walls. These were the only places open to the foreigners. And when I say foreigners, I mean foreign men. No Western women were allowed in any shape or form. This is where they ate, slept, transacted business, and stored their goods. No firearms were allowed, and no foreign vessel was allowed to pass the Bogue. The Bogue was the name of that narrow channel where the Pearl River dumps out into the South China Sea. This is right near the town of Human. And the way the system worked... There was a five-month trading season, and once the season ended, the Chinese demanded these foreigners withdraw from Canton and get out of town. They either headed to Portuguese Macau, not the friendliest place for the British, or they sailed to India, or just back home to England, but they had to evacuate Canton. Another problem was that since there was no official government-to-government relations between China and Britain or the U.S., all the diplomacy if you want to call it that, was commercial in nature. And these merchants were hardly suited to be skilled diplomats. They were a rowdy bunch who were only interested in making money and trying to get around any kind of restriction or regulation that got in the way of themselves and making a huge profit off their trading endeavors. Well, backed up by all the benefits yielded so far by the Industrial Revolution, Britain was in a unique position in the 1830s to be able to project military power from a great distance. Whether they would be able to project such power from London all the way to Guangzhou and beyond remained to be seen. They had made fast work of Napoleon, and they seemed to have India under control, Now they were itching to test the mettle of the Qing Dynasty emperor and his military might. Let's sort of pick up right after the end of the East India Company, uh, after they lost their monopoly in 1834, and when, out of financial necessity, the East India Company began selling licenses to smaller traders. This is when things were totally up for grabs. During this transitional period of post-EIC deregulation, and rewriting of the laws. Anybody could basically do anything. You had no holds barred trading and smuggling in the South China Sea. They couldn't have been happier after the EIC lost their monopoly. Now, with those guys out of the way, the only thing prohibiting the kind of trade they were aiming for were the Chinese themselves. The merchant princes like Jardine, Matheson, Dent, Russell, all began scheming, how to get around the China authorities as well. They had one single aim. To bust China wide open and freely trade throughout the country. By now in the 1830s, the customs revenue that the British crown was collecting from the China traders was between 15 to 20% of everything the exchequer took in. These traders were critical to the country's annual financial state. And of that, 8% of the revenue came from the one thing the British finally found that China wanted. And this, of course, was that excellent, top-quality opium that came out of British India and Bengal. Introducing opium on a mass scale had been the big game-changer for the region. Opium, during the early Qing period, was a pleasure enjoyed only by the rich, But once prices came down to the level where the man on the street could afford it, that's when it became a menace to society. Prior to exporting all this opium from India, all this tea and silk was paid for in silver. But once the British introduced opium, it gave them a favorable trade balance. In fact, it did better than that. It threw things way out of whack in China, and the tables were turned. Now the Chinese were paying silver for the opium, just like the British had been forced to do with tea and silk for all those years. To sort of get the ball rolling. July twenty-fifth, 1834. Lord Napier arrived in Canton after a long voyage from England. For lack of any other suitable candidate, it was Napier who was given the title of First Superintendent of Trade. This position had been created to fill the void left by the East India Company, who had always, you know, sort of ran things. But now, as I said, they were no longer a force to be reckoned with. Although he was instructed before he left England not to do anything rash with the Chinese and not to provoke any incidents, Napier had written in his diary, quote, The Empire of China is my own. What a glorious thing it would be to have a blockading squadron on the coast of the Celestial Empire. How easily a gun brigade would raise a revolution and cause them to open their ports to the trading world. I should like to be the medium of such a change. So with this hidden agenda in mind, even before he got there, Lord Napier charged in like a bull in a china shop, intent on teaching these Chinese a lesson, and... You know what happens when you do that. Essentially, Lord Napier got nowhere. He broke every established, unwritten rule that these traders had learned over the years and how to deal with the local officials. Lord Napier figured he was British, they were all powerful and rising to the top of the world political food chain, and by God, these China officials better get in line or else... Well, this Napier mission, it started off bad, got worse, and then it deteriorated from there. And when the Chinese began, you know, playing with Lord Napier, using the characters to write Lord Napier's name in Chinese and the official documents, you know, passed back and forth, you know, that when you translated these characters, it meant, you know, it means something terribly offensive. You know, Lord Napier just saw red. And he thereupon initiated his own insults and Keep them upon his counterparts, you know, these local officials in Canton. Things continued to go downhill from there, and in short order, the whole Napier mission broke down. And after two failed months of going nowhere, Lord Napier called in a couple of frigates that he had tucked away not too far from Canton and had them sail up the Pearl River to the Bogue to show these Chinese he meant business. But this provocation didn't faze the Chinese forces, and after an exchange of gunfire between Chinese troops based in the forts along the river and the two vessels that Lord Napier had called in, it all went south from there for Lord Napier and his ill-fated mission. And to exacerbate matters for himself personally, Lord Napier had contacted malaria and was slowly dying. This was August, September, and the muggy, hot unbearable summer that the whole Pearl River Delta was famous for. And you know how these guys all dressed back then, so coming straight from London like he did, the fact that Lord Napier wilted so fast isn't so surprising. The Chinese blocked the port and slowed the British down while Lord Napier languished on board. All his fight drained from him as the malaria slowly killed him. After a couple of weeks of this diplomatic standoff, the British vessels were allowed to sail, and Lord Napier gave orders to head to Macau, and there he died, shortly after making landfall on October 11th, 1834. Napier had written to the Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, quote, "'Three or four frigates and brigs with a few steady British troops would settle the thing in a space of time inconceivably short.' such an undertaking would be worthy of the greatness and power of England. Well, now with the humiliating demise of Lord Napier, the British had a casus belli. The question in England was whether or not to use this incident to go to war and blast China open in order to create a full-blown system of trade, not to mention a new massive potential market for British goods. William Jardine had sailed back to England, and he used every single ounce of his considerable persuasive powers to bend the air of the politicians that he kept in his back pocket. His objective was to go to war with China and seize a base of operations from which full, unfettered trade could be carried out without any of the craziness of the Canton system to get in the way. This... Is where the idea of Hong Kong came about. As the eighteen thirties unfolded and all these foreign traders were scheming how in the heck to get around these Kohong merchants in Canton, it became a period of intense meetings in the Forbidden City. With the Tao Emperor and his closest advisors, different factions called for different actions to take against the foreigners. The argument was, well, it was it similar to today's argument regarding the American War on Drugs. Should we just legalize it and regulate drugs, or use brute force to stamp out the whole trade and go after users and dealers? One faction was strongly calling for the emperor to legalize the opium trade, and in so doing, vast fortunes could be earned for the treasury. Well, we've heard that argument before here in sunny California with the marijuana business. Another faction, and these were the guys who won out in the end, called for the emperor to outlaw the drug trade and round up all the users. And one of the spokesmen for this faction was Lin Zexu. You remember him from the Opium War episode? He's a great hero in China, mainly for having the uh, cojones to stand up to the foreigners. One of the main points of contention was whether they needed a base that they could call their own or not. I mean, the ultimate objective was simply to get rid of the Canton system and to enjoy free trade throughout China. No one was dead set on acquiring any land. I mean, that really meant a whole new set of headaches for the British government. You know, and they weren't too keen on taking that on. Lord Napier, he had his sights set on Hong Kong, you know, until he met his premature demise. The idea of a permanent British base of operations, situated on some offshore island, but within close proximity to China, was bandied about. They were all in agreement. The current system in Canton had become too unbearable. That had to go. All were in agreement on this point. After taking stock of the whole situation, the general feeling was that The only way Britain was going to get what it wanted was by force. This meant some sort of naval operation needed to be carried out. The British obtained sovereignty over Singapore in 1824, and already a decade later, the benefits to having this kind of base of operations were immediately felt. And if this base near Canton had a British flag flying over the government house, all the better. The traders could speak with the entirety of the British government backing them up rather than simply some superintendent of trade who was toothless when it came to enforcing anything or speaking out on behalf of the traders. You know how the British were with their insistence on law and order. Laws which regulated trade and made it free and fair could only be enforced with the might of the British Empire behind it. Therefore, they needed an island of some sort to plant the flag and make it official. In 1838, the Daoguang emperor empowered Lin Zexu to go down to the south and force these foreigners to get with the program. And as the well-known story goes, Lin Zexu went down to Guangdong province, arriving March 10th, 1839, and on March 18th, he gave an order to all foreigners. Everyone, they all had to sign this opium bond, which in so many words made the signatory swear never to deal in the opium business again in China. Plus, they had to hand over all their stocks of opium to be destroyed. And to show he meant business, Lin Xu had everyone placed under a eh, kind of house arrest for two months. Everyone was confined to Canton. The one in charge back then, was Captain Charles Elliot R.N., who was first superintendent of British trade. He had served under Lord Napier previously. And from his perch in Macau, Elliot took stock of the situation and told the British merchants to do as the Chinese say and that, you know, whatever losses there were, the British crown would, you know, back them up with you know, whatever losses the traders incurred. And this amounted to two, two and a half million pounds sterling, of which... Uh, Her Majesty's government later only ponied up uh, 1,281,211 pounds. Captain Elliot did this under duress because, well, to have argued with Lin Shu at a time when Lin had the home field advantage, you know, so to speak, would have been suicidal. So, 20,291 chests of opium were handed over, and Lin Shu had his big bake sale in Human where all this... Opium was destroyed. With this taken care of, Lin's issue allowed the British to leave, and then they hightailed it to Macau to regroup and come up with a plan. Lin continued to keep up the pressure and used his influence to exert pressure on the British that were holed up in Macau. And this was simple, because Macau survived... You know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, just with supplies that were you know handed to them by the Chinese. You know, if any monkey business going on in Macau, all of a sudden you'd find ooh no water or no foodstuffs or you know whatever daily necessities. So the British were hounded in Macau as well. The British were making the Portuguese look bad, and you know those guys, the Portuguese had no dog in this fight. So Captain Elliot and the rest of the British, they had to get out and they sailed to Hong Kong tracing the routes that today are traversed dozens of times daily by jet foils and hydrofoils, varying gamblers back and forth between these two places, Hong Kong and Macau. He dropped anchor in Hong Kong Harbor and planned his next move. They docked in Kowloon, and several of the British sailors they you know, set out for a little fun and adventure, much the same as many other Naval or merchant sailor has done for over 200 years since. They went ashore and they got all liquored up in Jim Sajai, and wouldn't you know it, one of the sailors shot and killed a local, Mr. Lin Wei Hai. And then all hell broke loose. Lin Zishu wanted reparations and for the offender, whoever he was, to be handed over for some quick justice, Chinese style. Well, with no rule book to go manage the resolution of the incident, Elliot tried his best to handle this Kowloon incident of July 7th, 1839, Ringo's birthday. The Chinese attacked the British vessels using the old, tried and true method of fireboats. You know, a trick that was used most effectively by Liu Bei and, you know, against Taotao uh, Cao at the Battle of Chirpy. So, with this act, open warfare had begun. So the debate went on in London about how to deal with matters at hand in Canton. Jardine and the other merchant princes all worked hard to lobby their MPs to do something to ameliorate the whole trading system. The present system was totally unacceptable and in a way highly insulting to the high esteem that the British held themselves. This was hotly debated and there was a lot of vociferous opposition to the opium trade, especially by the religious community. However, thanks to all the heavy-handedness and terror meted out against so many missionaries, the opposition of the religious community against open hostilities against China were somewhat muted. William Jardine and the other merchants in Canton all petitioned the government in London and argued that had Lord Napier had some firepower to back him up, he wouldn't have gone down in flames like he did. They requested someone to come out who carried plenipotentiary powers, someone that walked loudly and carried a big stick, and who could walk in and demand reparations for the losses incurred when Lin Zhe destroyed the opium. For the rest of the 1830s, this whole matter of how to handle this matter of China trade was very hotly debated in Parliament. Lin's issues, justifiable actions taken against the British, were all that Jardine and the other merchants needed. It was a gift from the gods. Now they were able to easily go to their MPs and to the Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, and say, you know, see, 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 look what they've done now. We've got to take action. Lord Palmerston fired off a diplomatic letter to the emperor and in so many words said that you know the present arrangement is no longer acceptable to the british side and they you know they wanted some small insignificant island somewhere close by uh, of which there were hundreds to choose from where british subjects could carry out their trade unmolested and free from the potential violence that had just recently happened now again the cessation of an island was negotiable after all the objective was free trade not to seize land from China. Eliot and his cousin, Rear Admiral George Elliot, were made plenipotentiaries, and they went in and did their thing. June 1840, they sailed out of Macau. First, they blockaded Canton, and then they blockaded the port of Zhoshan off the coast of Ningbo. They weren't there to fight a war. They simply wanted to show they meant business and to deliver a copy of Palmerston's letter to the local authorities who would send it up the chain of command to the emperor, in theory. With the British getting too close for comfort, the Chinese sent in their negotiator to sit down and discuss matters in Canton. So they went back down south and assembled in Canton to hash things out. This was around August 1840. Captain Elliot was now the sole plenipotentiary in charge of the negotiations. To say they were torturous was an understatement. Elliot knew in ten seconds flat that he was just spinning his wheels trying to negotiate equitable terms. By January 1841, everything had just fallen apart, and this is when things got serious. Captain Elliot led his small body of troops to seize and occupy the Chinese forts along the Bogue near Humen, And once this was successfully carried out, the Chinese huddled together and, after weighing all their options, resigned themselves to the inevitable. This whole diplomatic mess was ultimately mopped up, and the British were allowed to keep trading from Canton as long as they didn't deal in opium. Those who refused, they couldn't trade. Well, Elliot did his best to enforce the ban. Actually, he himself was not a supporter of the opium trade and found it as odious as the next reasonable man. Elliot was the one who negotiated the treaty called the Convention of Quan Bi, or the Quan Bi Cao Yue, of January 20th, 1841. This is the deal where the British got Hong Kong, in theory. The document was simple in what it stated, which was, point one, the cessation of the island and harbor of Hong Kong to the British crown, all just charges and duties to the empire upon the commerce carrying on there to be paid as if the trade were conducted at Wampoa. Wampoa, or Huangpu, was the port of Canton. An indemnity to the British government of $6 million, $1 million payable at once, and the remainder in equal annual installments ending in 1846. Point three, direct official intercourse between the countries upon equal footing. Point four, the trade of the port of Canton to be open within ten days after the Chinese New Year, and to be carried on at Wampoa until further arrangements could be worked out at the new settlement. The British traders couldn't have been happier. But, on January twenty-third, 1841, the Canton Free Press ran a piece that gave the general attitude of the merchant community as far as Hong Kong was concerned. It said, we consider that for an independent British settlement, no situation can possibly be more favorably chosen than that of Hong Kong. The island itself is of little extent, but it forms with the neighboring lands, one of the finest ports existing. Hong Kong would We doubt not, in a very short time, become a place of very considerable trade, were its possession by the British not clogged with the condition that the same duties at Wampoa are to be paid there, which, in our estimation, destroys at once all the benefits that might be expected to trade there. So you see, there was mixed reactions to this. Let's talk a moment about the guy who negotiated the convention of Chuanbi on behalf of the emperor, who, by the way, never signed it. This man's name was Qi Shan. Who was he? Well, when Lin Zexu went down and burned all the opium down in Humen near Canton, it had some unintended blowback, namely a huge hit to the Qing imperial treasury. So Lin Zexu, he had to take the heat for that, and he ended up being exiled all the way out to Xinjiang. He was rehabilitated a few years later, and today, of course, he's immortalized as an official of great virtue and courage. And as far as the Chinese from history who stood up to the West, he is one of their poster boys. So when he got exiled, Chi Shan became his successor as governor general of Guangdong and Guangxi. He too got into a spot of trouble when he negotiated this Convention of Chuanbi. Like Lin Su, he took some heat from the emperor, but, you know, later on he was also rehabilitated. And then in 1854, uh, he died on the battlefield uh, fighting the Taiping rebels. The history books were also refer to Qishan as Qishan, K-E-S-H-A-N. Now, I'm going to leave everyone hanging and stick the bookmark in right here. We all know this Convention of Bi was not signed and was thoroughly dissed on both sides. Qishan never signed it, but the fact that He was cornered like he was, you know, in the eyes of the Qing imperial court. You know, made them look bad. So Qishan had been hauled back to Beijing in chains, and then a new guy was sent down to deal with this problem. And what happens next? Well, we'll look at that next time in part three. We'll continue on with the events that led up to the Treaty of Nanjing and all the exciting stuff that happened next. Should be a barn burner, so make sure to tune in. That's all I got for this time. I hope you enjoyed that, as Sir Bob Packett always says. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from, yes, Canton, the scene of the crime. I'm actually here on some secret China history podcast business. I'll be in Guangzhou for the next few days, and then off to Ningbo for some company function, and then I have some speaking engagement and a little historical sightseeing in Hangzhou, followed by a few days of well-deserved R&R in Shanghai. I'm back in L.A. on November 4th, and I hope to start on part three of this Hong Kong history series. Thanks to listener Craig, who filled me in on a couple inaccuracies from last week's episode. The Cretaceous period I mentioned last time actually ran between 145.5 to 65.5 million years ago. Not 50 to 80 million years ago, like I said, erroneously. Also, regarding the last ice age, uh, this last ice age wasn't the one that was responsible for carving out that Hong Kong landscape. The glaciers uh, didn't make it as far south as Hong Kong during this particular period. So thanks, Craig, and everyone else who, from time to time, let me know when something isn't quite right. Take care, everyone, wherever you are in this world of ours. This is Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from the 18th floor of the Guangzhou Marriott in beautiful Tianhe and wishing and hoping you'll join me next week for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. And when I say exciting, I mean it this time. Take care, all.